You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, Creekside, good morning. So good to see all of you. And if you're joining us online, thank you so much for joining us. My name's Jeff, one of the pastors here. Uh, All you dads, surrogate dads, spiritual dads, uh, any men here who are faithfully investing in the next generation, happy Father's Day. Uh, Appreciate you so much and want to honor you, uh, just respect you today for that role you're playing. And I want to see all of you at the men's retreat this year, all of you. And if you're not a dad, but you're a man, I want to see you at the men's retreat this year, okay? We've got more details coming up. October 1st through 3rd, just get out your device, put it in there, in your shared calendar with your wife, so she knows as well, October 1st through 3rd, save that date. I am, I am still annoyed that we weren't able to do it last year, because uh, really, it is one of the highlights of, of my year. Uh, I need it, so uh, man, I'd love to see you there as well. Uh, this Father's Day is particularly special for me For the past year or so, we've been fostering a little guy named Omari, who many of you have met. And uh, on Monday, June 7th, Omari Zion Bruce formally became a member of our family. And um, and so his legal adoption is now official, uh, which means I'm officially his dad, which is... uh, an amazing thing in family, uh, it is one of the greatest privileges of my life to, to get to call myself his dad. I, I'm so grateful for that. I am so thankful for how you church family have welcomed him. Omari doesn't even know it. He has this enormous spiritual extended family already. And uh, he is just so loved. We, we love Omari, and he, okay, he's not that hard to love. I mean, I know parenting is hard and all that, but he is just lovable, okay? Like, he's not the hard kid to love. He is loved, and he is a lover. He is the kid who runs up to strangers at Taco Bell and just starts giving them hugs. That happened last week. Uh, he, he just, he's just constantly smiling, waving, he, he does this thing, his favorite thing is to, to make people sit next to him and he'll go like, huh, huh, huh. That's, his, that's the three motion thing he's constantly doing. Just like, huh, get over here, right? And, and I'm just so glad that that's his bent, that he's just, he's a golden retriever. He just loves people. He just assumes they're gonna love him back. And, and, and you know, as much as I'm grateful for that, I know this other truth that no matter how well we love this little guy, he's going to face some unique challenges. Because at some point, he's going to learn his story and that he has been adopted, and adoption is beautiful, but it's also extremely painful. And I've talked to enough people who have been adopted to know that when you're separated from your family of origin, regardless how early that separation took place, there is this primal existential sense of loss, of abandonment, that's just there. 
And no matter how well you're loved and received and welcomed in your family, it's there and it makes it very hard to trust, to attach, to connect. Because there is this incessant voice inside of you asking who is really trustworthy, who won't abandon me. And I've just taken it as my objective in life is to convince my son every single day that I delight in him that I'm invincibly committed to him, and that ultimately he can trust me, and more importantly, he can trust God, his Father in heaven. Trust. Trust is the deal. It's the fundamental issue. In fact, I would say in so many of our relational conflicts and problems, trust is the issue beneath the issue. That ultimately, so many of our relational challenges come down to trust. Can I trust you? And today, I hope to show you that that is also true of our relationship with God. So we're taking a few months to work through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. And the reason we're doing this is because the Bible is one unified story about God And if you skip the introduction to the story, you have no idea what's happening. And Genesis 1 through 11, that's God's introduction to God's story. This is the framework for understanding the drama of redemption. In Genesis 1 through 11, we we learn the basic characters in the story, who God is, who we are, the setting, our role, all of that. And now we get to the problem in the story. And every good story has a problem, has a conflict. And today we get to the basic problem in the biblical story and our story. And if you're a Christian and you went to Sunday school, you already know the answer. It's sin. Sin is the root problem. And as Christians, we would say that all of our problems, whether they're physical or social or psychological or economic or political or environmental, whatever the issue, sin is the issue beneath the issue. The Bible describes sin in a number of ways. Sin is lawlessness. It's transgressing God's law. Sin is rebellion. It is treason against the king of the universe. Sin is unfaithfulness. It's a disloyalty to God, your covenant partner. Sin is described as idolatry. It's loving and trusting something more than God himself. Sin is a perversion. It distorts God's good order. It vandalizes God's good creation. Sin is the root issue. I'm going to ask a different question today. What's at the root of sin? Okay, sin is the problem behind the problems, but what's at the root of the problem of sin? Why don't we want God and his ways? And what I pray that you will see today is that sin is not primarily a trying problem. It is a trusting problem. Sin is not primarily a trying problem, but a trusting problem. What do you mean, Jeff? I mean this, that the primary problem in your life is not that you lack resolve and you just need to try a little harder to do what God says. The problem is worse than that. (laughs) It's a deeper problem. Your deepest problem, my deepest problem, is that we are unwilling to entrust ourselves to God and would rather trust ourselves. And that truth, that the problem of sin is a trust problem, it changes the way we look at sin. 
First, it reframes our understanding of what a sinner is. And it's not just someone who does spectacularly wicked things, but ultimately someone who just wants to live independently of God. And it changes the way we think about the problem of sin in our own lives. What a sinner looks like and why we sin to begin with. So today, sin's entrance into the world, I want to show you why it's a trust issue. Three things, we're looking at God's test. He's really asking us, who are you going to trust? We're going to look at the serpent's trick, which is sowing distrust, and then humanity's trade-off, which is self-trust, that ultimately we'd rather trust ourselves than God. And I hope to show you that all your sin issues are trust issues, but, but before we do that, let's go to God and ask him to, to lead our time in the Word. Holy Spirit, you promise to lead us into truth. So I ask you today, as your word is preached, that you would lead our hearts to the truth that we have a Father in heaven who is completely trustworthy, who is unfailingly good and true, who always keeps his promises, and that the safest place for us to be is trusting him rather than ourselves. Would you incline our hearts to trust him more? For your sake, Jesus Christ, we pray it in your name. Amen. So the test, the trick... The trade-off, let's look at God's test in Genesis 2. We've already looked at this, but now let's talk about it. Two trees in this garden for Adam and Eve. Verse 9, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we go on to read in verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God creates the first two humans, Adam and Eve. He places them in this beautiful garden. It's a temple. It's a sanctuary where his presence will dwell. He gives an abundant source of food, every imaginable source of food you would need. And then there are these two trees right in the middle, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, you can eat from one, do not eat from the other. And I know what question you're asking, why? <laughs> Why put the tree in the garden? I've heard one person ask it this way. you got a bunch of toddlers running around the garden. Why do you put a loaded gun on the kitchen table? God, what are you thinking? Why a tree with a prohibition attached to it? Now, in answering that question, first of all, it's important to admit there is mystery here about the origin of sin and evil into the world, but it's also important to understand the symbolism of what God is trying to convey. Because two things are true at once in this passage. First, there was a literal fall in history. This isn't just a myth. This happened. There was an Adam. There was an Eve. They rebelled against God. And sin broke things, right? You can't have redemption without a problem being introduced at some point in history. This is when it gets introduced. This isn't just some myth. It happened in history. And yet the truth the author is trying to convey is way bigger than just the literal description of the text. This is a symbolic truth as well. And one thing you have to understand in Scripture is that these categories of literal truth and literary truth aren't pitted against each other. That in the Bible, things can happen and yet represent realities that are far bigger than the thing itself. And so we have to ask, 
Why is the author using, which he is, highly symbolic language here of something that happened? Well, what do the symbols represent? What's the point of the two trees? Here's the point of the two trees. Whenever God establishes relationship with humans in the Bible, whenever he does it, he establishes something called a covenant. Covenant. There's promises on both sides of the relationship. God makes promises to us. He asks for our faithfulness in return. And within every covenant, there's blessings if we trust him. There's curses if we disobey. And so the covenant trees here, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, are essentially the two paths God is plotting out for humanity, the road to blessing and the road to death. And here's the thing about humans, what we've seen already. Humans are unlike the rest of creation, aren't they? Humans are not docile. Humans don't just do things in accordance with exactly what God dictates. Humans rule. They rule as God's representatives. They are not passive in the way the rest of the created order is. They're active, and now they need to learn how to use this power of ruling, of choosing how to rule. And Adam and Eve need to be taught how to rule, and that's the trees. The tree of life in the Bible is a symbol of the wisdom from above. The tree of life is God's wisdom. Right? If you, if you look at Proverbs and the wisdom literature, the tree of life is essentially this. You're connected to God. You're living life with God. You're receiving wisdom from God and learning from God what it means to live a wise life. That's humans. Rule in this way. Eating of the tree means living in communion with God, learning from Him. Here's the best way to live. But there's another choice that humans have. This is the dignity of choice. That there's also a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that is a symbol, not of wisdom from above, but of wisdom from below. It means wisdom independent of God. It means wisdom apart from God's direction. That phrase, knowing good and evil, what does that mean, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What it means, if you look at it in the context of the Old Testament, is this. The knowledge of good and evil is the power to discern the difference between good and evil. That's what it means, right? God has the knowledge of good and evil. That doesn't mean he knows evil experientially, right? <laughs> that he's just sinning all the time. No, God never sins. The knowledge of good and evil means the power to decide this is right, this is wrong. This is good, this is evil. Now, God wants to train humanity in the power to discern this is the good way, this is the bad way. How do they do that? Through connecting with God, through teaching. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil means this. I'm going to decide what's right and wrong. I'm going to claim that power for myself independently of God. Does that make sense? Two choices, live with God and learn the difference between good and evil as he teaches you, or take that prerogative for yourself and say, I can trust myself. I have that power for myself. That's the test, and there is mystery here. I realize that, but the truth is this, that humans grow through tests. Amen? They grow through tests. That's how we mature. Adam and Eve are sinless. They are innocent. Do you know what they are not yet? Mature. They're not mature. 
they still need to learn and grow, and we grow through tests. Do you know how Jesus grew in his earthly life? Through tests. Hebrews 5 says Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Does that mean Jesus was a sinner, then he became sinless? No, he was always sinless, and yet he had to grow. He had to grow in maturity. He had to grow untrusting God in communion with him how to discern between good and evil. We grow through tests, and you know that because the point of tests is this. Do you really understand the material? I would have never learned biblical Greek unless I knew that Professor Kwok was going to grill us on irregular case endings. And that's why I learned all of those irregular case endings three hours before the test, so I could forget them forever. That's why we take a driver's test. Got to learn how to operate this deadly weapon, a car, right? And so you practice, and you, you took the test, and then for one time in your life, you obey all the traffic laws, so you can disobey them again forever, right? Why do you exercise. Ultimately, you work out to test your body. You can watch Nike commercials all day long, and you can get really inspired. What you won't get is a six-pack, right? At some point, you have to introduce resistance, overcome it, and you grow. You mature. I heard a neuroscientist say that the, reasons, the reason brains deteriorate, the primary reason is not age. It's inactivity. It's not age. You, you can continue to develop your brain, but what do you have to do? You have to test it constantly with new challenges, new problems. You have to keep solving them. And, and people, that's why you can be very late in life and be very sharp if you continue to what? Test. We grow through tests. Jesus grew through tests. Adam and Eve are to grow through the tests. But here's the thing. The test, ultimately, is a test of trust. When God introduces the test of obedience, he's saying, I'm going to prove myself trustworthy. You're going to rule the world, but you have to rule it trusting me. And if you don't trust me, you won't know how to rule this world. You guys have power, and you have no idea what to do with it unless you submit it to me. The implication here is that the test of obedience is how God builds our trust in him. And with anyone in the Bible, Joseph, Moses, right, the prophets, there's always a period of preparation, of testing to see how we will use power, and then the giving of power. God wants to give the world to humans, and he says, you have to prove that you are trustworthy. Will you trust me to tell you how to use this power, or will you trust yourself? That's a nice implication for you to think about, because any test you're currently facing where you're like, oh, I don't know if I should obey God, uh, you know what it ultimately is? It's the test of trust. That's what it is. Who gets to define reality? Who gets to discern good from evil? Is it you, or is it God? That's what you are facing right now. It is a test of trust. Now, in light of that, the question is this, then what does Satan, the serpent, attack first in the garden? Ultimately, what he is attacking in Adam and Eve is their conception of God and whether or not he's really worthy of such trust. Let's go on. Chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Now, the serpent was more, and if you've got a Bible, this is the word to underline. If, I don't know if anyone does that ever anymore, but 
highlight it in your YouVersion app, crafty. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Here we are introduced to the villain in the biblical story. It is the serpent. The word can refer to a snake or some kind of monstrous creature from the land or from the sea. But what's interesting is the creature here is a part of God's created order. And it's also clear that this creature is in opposition to God. And that's important for us to realize if we think about sin as uh, Christians and evil, right? The Bible portrays the introduction of sin and evil here as an intruder into God's good creation. Now, it's mysterious where this guy comes from, but here's the point. It's not like in the beginning there was God and Satan. In the beginning, there was good and evil, and good and evil are kind of these things that have always existed necessarily or in polarity. That's an Eastern idea. That's not a a biblical idea. The biblical story is this, that God is over everything. God creates everything, and yet mysteriously, rebellion appears within God's creation. Now, the author does not indicate this is Satan here. But if you look at Jesus in John 8, Paul in Romans 16, the whole sweep of the biblical narrative, it's clear that this is a representative picture of Satan, the chief archenemy of God and and the one who is defying God, wants to thwart God. And here's what's so interesting about the way this serpent is described here. In Hebrew narrative, uh, characterization is rare. What do I mean? It's rare for the author to introduce a character in this way and say, here's what he's like. And what do we hit here? The serpent was crafty, the craftiest. Now, here's what's interesting about craftiness. Uh, It just means shrewd. It can even mean wise. It's a neutral category, right? Someone can be shrewd in a good direction in Scripture. It means prudent. It means seeing ahead. It means making plans. Or you can be shrewd in a very bad direction. (laughs) So it's this ability that Satan has here that he is using against God, against his purposes. And notice that Satan's ways are crafty, clever, sneaky, deceitful. More than meets the eye. That's the idea here. That when the serpent works, we should pay very close attention to what he says because it's more complicated than what we'd think. It's, it's more clever than what we realize. He is crafty. And, and Satan is very crafty here because here's what Satan does. And this will help you understand temptation. Satan does not go to Eve and say, Eve do it. You know, you want to eat it. Eat it. Does he ever, in fact, does he ever say eat of the tree in this entire thing? No. He, he never directly tells Eve to disobey. This is important for us to understand because I think when we think about temptation, we think about like, you know, the angel on the shoulder and the devil on the shoulder. And, and you think that like there's a woman, an old woman crossing the street. I don't know why that's the, always the moral dilemma that we're in. I, but anyway, She's crossing the street, and then you got the angel saying, help her, you know, and then you got the bad like, no, like, shove her. Or so I don't know what they're saying, right? But that's like, that's the moral dilemma that's supposedly going on. That's not how temptation works. That's not how sin, Satan, deception works. He's clever. If that's how it worked, disobey God right now. If that's the temptation you hear in your head, you're like, no, I'm not going to do that. Sounds like a bad idea. That is never how Satan works. 
what does he do? He doesn't attack the commandment, he attacks the character of God. See how much more subtle it is to do that way? It's not disobey this, it's no, here's why the person who gave the command shouldn't be trusted. He sows distrust, and he does it, it's perverse to say in a way, but brilliantly. He's shrewd. He's smarter than you. Look what he does, three things. First thing he does is he sows distrust in the clarity of God's word, the clarity of God's word. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, think about this. God gave humanity a clear word in Genesis 2. He gave it to Adam. He said, do not eat of this one tree. That's clear, isn't it? That's clear. He didn't give some command to Adam, like, practice humility, Adam, right? Like, some vague thing, like, what is that? No, it's like, do not touch the stove. That's the command. It's clear. It was not vague. And yet the first thing Satan does is call into question the clarity of a clear command. Very first thing he does. Now, Eve, let me just get this right. I just, I just want to ask a clarifying question here. Did God really say you, you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what he said? Now, we know that's what, not what God said, right? He, he said you can actually eat of every tree in the garden. Satan starts by assuming that God contradicted himself, right? There's any tree in the garden. Get, and, and actually, right, God gave basically the opposite command. You can eat of any tree in the garden, right? Except this one. And Eve corrects him. She, she's apparently learned the command from Adam. She says, no, there's, there's one tree from which we cannot eat. But notice, she adds a prohibition. Neither shall you touch it, which God didn't say. So already, in Eve's mind, it appears there's this thing brewing where God is more restrictive with his commandments than he actually was. He just said, don't eat. And now Satan is starting to confuse the issue, like casting doubt. Well, do you actually remember what God said? Didn't he really prohibit a lot of things? See, this is always the way that Satan works, is that he will sow confusion about God's word or God's wisdom. And here's why. Because if we think that God's word doesn't clearly speak to the situations we're going through in our life and give us wisdom, who will we rely on instead? Ourselves. If God's word seems muddled or confused or unclear on an issue, we'll just think, well, this is why would I even try? God's having issues communicating. I need to trust myself. And notice that Satan is also setting the terms of the debate very subtly because what is he suggesting to Eve here implicitly? It's that we can evaluate God's word, that we can stand in judgment against it. Was God clear enough with that? What did he actually say? So that's the first thing he does. Satan sows confusion related to God's word. So, first Satan says, God's word is not as clear as you assume. The second thing he suggests is that God's presence is not as near as you would assume. He does this in a very subtle way. He sows distrust in the nearness of God's presence. This is interesting. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Now, that doesn't seem significant in our English Bibles, but in, in Genesis 1 through 3, there are two words for God used. There's Elohim, and Elohim is generic word for God. 
It can refer to the God of the Bible, the God of creation. It can refer to a false God. It can refer to all sorts of different gods. It's just kind of a general God word. And then there's the personal God word, which is Yahweh, which is also used. That's the, the covenant word for God. That's the God who speaks and wants relationship and communicates directly with you. And of course, what one does Satan use? The generic word. Hey, did that, that God over there, did he, he say this to you? Right? What Satan is introducing here is distance in the relationship. God has already revealed himself as a covenant God, a God who speaks directly, who addresses, who wants relationship, who entrusts. And now, now the serpent gets in there and goes, yeah, God isn't as near as you think. And what's interesting is that when Eve responds, she doesn't say, well, here's what Yahweh instructed us, says, here's what Elohim said. See, Satan is introducing the way God will be talked about in the relationship. And it's a more distant view of God. It's not a near view of God. See, pay attention. He's crafty. They said he's crafty. The way he does this, he's just introducing this idea. And, and here's why that's so important. If God is distant, if he's not near, if he's distant, he's probably what? Disinterested. He, he doesn't take an active interest in me, which means would I look to him for direction in my life or wisdom? Well, No. God seems kind of removed, so who do I ultimately need to trust? It's me. It's trusting myself. So first, confusion. What does God's word really say? Is God really that close? The third thing he does is he sows distrust in the goodness of God's character. He's saying, Eve, God's word isn't that clear. God's presence isn't that near, and his character isn't that dear. That's a lame one, I know, but you'll remember it, okay? So... Is he really that good? What does he say? He says, the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, God is holding out on you. The reason that prohibition is there is because there's something that you should have that God doesn't want you to have. Now, here's what is so crafty about this. If you look closely at everything Satan says here, and you'll see this in a second, nothing is absolutely false. Nothing he says is absolutely false. In fact, there's an element of truth to every single thing he says, but there's an old Yiddish proverb, right, that a, a half-truth is a whole lie. And that's what he's doing. He's speaking indirectly. First, you shall surely not die. Whoa, Eve, let's, let's be clear on what it means you will die. It, don't freak. You're not going to die immediately, Eve. That's not going to happen. And remember, they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then what happens? They don't immediately die physically. But they are exiled from God's presence, which in the Old Testament is a living death to be separated from the presence of God. So they do surely die in that sense. And later they do physically die. But again, Satan's speaking in half-truths. Well, that's not, it's not exactly that you literally die, Eve. Then he says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Eve, you will have a new knowledge that you didn't have before. Is that true? <laughs> Absolutely. We'll get to verse seven. Their eyes are opened. It's what the text explicitly says. It's just that they don't learn that they're shrewd. They learn that they're nude. <laughs> When they eat, they don't experience wisdom, they experience their vulnerability. 
apart from God because they're separated from him. So there's a half truth there. And then he says, you will be like God knowing good and evil, which is exactly what God says in verse 22. They become like us, God says, knowing good and evil. It's true. When Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are like God in this sense. They're acting like God acts. They're saying that we are claiming the prerogative for ourselves to decide what is good and evil. That's what it means to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That this God-like prerogative, which is to belong exclusively to God, the right to determine good from evil, we're taking it for ourselves. We're going to act like God, and they do. They say, no, we can decide. We're going to follow our hearts and decide that this is good. You're wrong, God. And so in that sense, they are like God in the way they are acting. And yet we know it is the worst possible thing they could do. And so in one sense, the serpent is true. They're playing God. They're determining good and evil. They're trying to discern what their best life is apart from God. But here's the tragic irony. Adam and Eve are created in the image of God, which means they're already what? Like God. Listen, some of you don't have masks on now. Like, you really, like, I can hear you. So just say things, okay? They're already like God. They're like God already. They didn't need to become more like God in that sense. They're as like God as you can be created in the image of God. And yet they want to be like God in a way that it is impossible for humans to be like God, to actually play God and act like you're a creator rather than creation. And so do you see how calculating Satan is here? He is saying that God isn't clear, God isn't near, God isn't dear. It is not apparent that the command God has given is a good command. And behind this door is goodness, life, joy, wisdom that God doesn't want you to have. And, and, and that's all Satan has to say to sow the seeds of distrust, isn't it? To sow that idea that, you know what, maybe this God who created us, who gave us this beautiful garden, who's been nothing but consistent to us, isn't as good as we thought. And if that's true, the minute that seed gets planted, it blooms into sin. Because sin here is fundamentally just saying, I gotta trust myself and not God. And you know what's, what's so fascinating about this is that humans do not change in this regard. There's no sin version 2.0. This is exactly what sin still looks like. There's a sociologist, Christian Smith, he did this fascinating study on emergent adults, right? So like 18 through 24, something like that, year old. He did this a few years back. But he wanted to see the spirituality, the religious beliefs of emergent adults in our culture. And what he found is that, that a lot of young adults, they're not atheists, okay? He actually came up with a, a new name for it, and it's a very memorable name. He called it they are moralistic therapeutic deists, was his name, which is a great term for you. Just, that's a great trash talk name. You sound like a moralistic therapeutic deist, right? Like, um, here's what he meant. When he interviewed person after person in this age demographic, this was their view of God, basically. First of all, it was deistic. We looked at this in the week one. Deistic means there is a God, probably, but he's detached. He's disinterested. He's not involved in everyday affairs. He hasn't clearly revealed himself, right? So what is that? God's presence isn't near. God's word isn't clear. His character hasn't been revealed to us. Deism, God is detached. Moralistic is this, that, well, I think we should be good in some sense. 
Then God wants us to be good. Therapeutic is this, God wants us to feel good. It's very important that we feel good. And so if you put all that together, what is that? That's basically what Adam and Eve believe here, is moralistic, therapeutic deism. That, that there's a detached God who's not very interested in me, and I know I should be good. I don't really know what he says. I don't really like what he says about here, but I know I need to feel good, and that's probably what God wants, so I'm just going to do that anyway. And it's amazing. In interview after interview that, that Smith does, you see it again, just, you know, what's right is what I feel in my heart, and whatever I feel in my heart is what's right, and how do I know that it's right? Well, I felt it in my heart. It's like this circular thing that just keeps going. In interview after interview after interview, that's Eve. That's Adam. It is distrusting the Lord with all your heart and leaning on your own understanding. That's what it is. This, this does not evolve over time. This is the root of sin. And here's the implication for you with any sin you are dealing with right now, that that temptation at its root, it's not a desire to disobey. Do you know what it is at its root? It's a desire to distrust. Whatever sin you're dealing with right now, fundamentally is I don't think God's will is best in this area. And so I have to lean on my own understanding. Tim Chester has kind of a helpful taxonomy for thinking about this. There's four things that are true of God that you can take to the bank. Four Gs. God is great. God is good. God is glorious. God is gracious. Four things that are always true about God. God is great. And the greatness of God means we don't have to be in control of our lives. We don't have to be general manager of the universe. God is good. Means we don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. That everything that is good for us is circumscribed by the moral law of God. Anything outside that is not good, anything inside it is good. God is glorious means he's the most beautiful, fear, fearful, fearsome being in the universe. And because he is glorious, we don't have to fear people. God is gracious means we don't have to prove ourselves. That he has more power to forgive than we have to sin. I can't think of a sin that isn't rooted in some way in disbelieving one of those four things about God. You have to believe the lie. God, when you, when you are anxious, right, you forget that God's great. Or you deny that God's great. Say, God, you are not a very good general manager of the universe, but I'm going to help you. <laughs> I, I'm going to plan the future, God, because <laughs> I'm not sure you've got it worked out, Right? I heard one guy said, you know, a lot of people want to serve God in an advisory role. That's, that's a lot of us, right? Like, God, I, I think my plan for the future, this is the one that makes the most sense. This is where I find my peace. What are you saying? God, you're not that great. When you're terrified of your boss at work and please him and you don't like the way it feels because you keep giving into their demands, what are you saying? Really, you're saying, God, you're not glorious. That ultimately, I should, the beginning of wisdom is fearing my boss, not fearing you right? If you're constantly beating yourself up over sin and recriminating yourself and living in guilt and shame, it's a denial, God, you're not as gracious as you say you are. What, what you say is true about me really isn't true. And God is good anywhere you're looking for satisfaction outside of, of God. You're saying that, you know what, God, you do withhold things from those who walk uprightly. <laughs> do you understand? So ask yourself with the sin you're struggling right now, where is the devil tricking you? into believing a lie about God because that's the root. Everything else is a symptom. 
Finally, and then we'll be done, look at humanity's trade-off, which is self-trust. This is where it's been leading all along. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. That phrase, the woman saw that the tree was good, should pop out at us. Because in Genesis 1 through 3, who sees what is good? God. That was a little better. God, okay? God is the one who saw that it was good. Saw that it was good. Saw that it was good. Seven times in Genesis 1, God sees that it is good. What does it mean? It doesn't mean that God perceives that it's good. It means God has decided that it is good. Does that make sense? That God looks at his world and makes a value judgment about it and says, this is good, this is good, this is good. That's not good for man to be alone, so this is good. I'll make a helper. God, seeing that it is good, is God instituting the moral order of the universe. It's him deciding what is good. And so when the text of Genesis says, the woman saw that the tree was good, what is he saying? The author is saying, Eve is acting like God that he looks at what God sees as not good and says, no, that is good. I've made the decision. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is that we know what God says, and we say, no, God, it is not your exclusive right to determine this. It's my right, and I see that it is good. That's what happens here, and what I want you to see is that this action inverts God's created order completely. See, God is the ruler. And then he institutes humans as the ones to what? Rule over creation as his representatives, right? God, humans, us. And he gives Adam the very specific responsibility of guarding the garden. Genesis 2, guard the garden and keep it, Adam. Why does it need to be guarded? Because there's a snake whose head needs to be crushed who might come into this place. And here we see the sin of Adam as well because the one who is entrusted by God to act as a priest in his sanctuary, there's something unclean coming in. The serpent, go deal with that. What does Adam do? He's with her. Sitting there with them. Male passivity, here it is. Which is amazing because Adam was the one to whom God addressed the command initially and said, if you eat it, you will die. Adam knew the consequences. Adam knew what would happen to Eve if she ate. And what does he do? He waits for her to eat first. Oh, wonder if she'll die. So instead of being a protector... He is completely abdicating that, putting her at the mercy of the serpent, and then when she doesn't die, says, okay, I guess I'll eat too. It's the inversion of the husband's role. It's the inversion of the entire created order because instead of God ruling over humans, ruling over creation, you have something in the created order ruling over humans who are trying to rule over God. It completely flips reality on its head, and that's what sin always does. That's why it's a perversion. It's an inversion of God's intention. That's the root of it. The the root of sin is do not trust in the Lord with any of your heart, but lean on your own understanding. 
Follow your heart. Follow what feels best. Only you can determine what's right for you in this situation. No one else can. Does that sound familiar? This never changes. This never changes, family. The nature of sin never changes. And that should cause you to reconceptualize sin. Because I still think, even in the church, when we talk about sin and sinners, we think of extraordinarily bad people. Right? They're a sinner. And they're, they're sexually deviant in this way, or they're violent, or they're, they're just uniquely awful, and they're, they're the people who show up in scandals. That is not a sinner, according to the Bible. A sinner is all of us. It is anyone who acts independently of God and trusts themselves for the way they live their life. So when you live prayerlessly, you're a sinner. When, when you just respond immediately to people and spout your wisdom at them and don't think what God has to say, that's called being a sinner. When you make every plan for your life and never to take into account what God says, you're a sinner. Just living without in awareness of God and his direction is the root of sin. Are any of us exempted from that? All of us, at some level, like to live as if there is not a God who must be trusted and obey for our flourishing. And sin is just living independently of God. That's it. That's it. And yet it is absolutely ruinous, and we see the fruit, the ripple effects throughout history of that decision. And ultimately what we needed was a champion who would trust God in our place and, and who proves to us that God is trustworthy. You think about Jesus in the desert, right? He gets tempted by the serpent again. And the serpent, it's the same exact temptation, isn't it? Jesus turns stones into bread. God said fast, turn stones into bread. Will you wait on God and his provision? Or will you take matters into your own hands and do what's right in your own eyes? And Jesus succeeds everywhere Adam fails, everywhere Israel fails, everywhere we fail. He lives a perfect life of obedience, but what I want you to see, it's a perfect life of trust in the character of God. And what Jesus proves by going to the cross is that Satan is wrong and Jesus is right about God's character, that God could not be better to us than he already is. He gave us his son. He gave us his son. What more could God do to prove he's trustworthy? That's Paul's argument in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not freely also with him give us all good things? God is not holding out on you. God has never held out on you. No good thing will he withhold to those who walk uprightly. And Jesus proves it because if God is that committed to us that he would give us Jesus, we can know that he is absolutely trustworthy. Let's pray. God, I pray that this would reframe the way that, that we think about sin in our own lives and that we would see ultimately we don't have trying issues but trust issues. It's not just about mustering up enough willpower, Lord, to obey in various areas. It's remembering who you are. So God, whatever temptation we're struggling with in our life, would we see that the root issue is that we just don't want to trust you because we don't think you're trustworthy. So remind us of the gospel. Remember of how uncompromisingly faithful you have been and have proven in your son. 
that God, every moment of our lives, we'd abide in you, Jesus. We'd depend on you. We would look to you for our direction and our provision. Only then are we safe. Only then can we have joy. Pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.